0: When I was in uh, college and seminary, I always dreaded the two o'clock class (laughs) because your belly's full and the afternoon is pressing on you and it's getting a little long and all you want to do is take a nap. So thank you, special thank you for coming back this afternoon. Uh, I hope that uh, the sessions this afternoon are a a blessing to you. I want to just uh, thank Mark for that stirring, challenging, convicting sermon on uh, the Christian struggle with sin from Galatians chapter five. There's like five of you that'll get that, <laughs> <laughs> including Mark. Mark and I have been, uh, it, Mark mentioned in his sermon that Romans chapter seven and how you interpret that is is uh, one part of the book of Romans that is Controverted by various people and Mark and I've been talking about that sort of all weekend like how are you going to do that and you know I don't think I agree with you on that and I don't think I agree with you on on this and that but one of the things that uh, when I uh, when I preach that sermon or that text in my own church one of the things that I said to my congregation is look th- this congregation is full of people who are going through seminary and studying Romans 7 along with the rest of the book and the rest of the Bible at various levels from, you know, boys' College students all the way up to PhD students. And so I knew coming into the thing that there were going to be several hundred people sitting in my congregation who would have very strong opinions about Romans 7. And so I said, uh, I said look, I know that I may be disagreeing with you on what I said. And I, I sort of talked about it a little bit and gave my answer to the question. And then I ducked behind the pulpit, you know, and <laughs> said, you know, please don't throw anything at me, but I'm going to give you my opinion on this whole thing and try to interpret this text. But I also said to him, look, isn't it, isn't it just a fantastic thing? Let's just back up from whatever... Questions we have about it or controversies there may be or interpretations about Romans 7. And let's just marvel for a second that one of the most controverted passages in the entire Bible is about this gritty little question about whether in the weeds of his argument in Romans chapter 7, Paul is talking about a Christian or a non-Christian. That's one of the most controverted things in all the New Testament. It's not did Jesus actually get up from the dead? It's not, can Jesus actually save people from sin? It's not, is there an eternity after this life and after we die? Those are not the things that Christians really get fired up about because we're all agreed on those things. What we get fired up about and argue about over lunch is whether Paul down in the grit is talking about a Christian or a non-Christian in these seven or eight little verses in the middle of Romans. So I think that's just worth marveling about and recognizing that it's a grace of God that the Bible is just incredibly clear and the Bible makes sense and the Bible is rational and if you read the Bible from cover to cover what you find is is not some irrational leap of faith into the dark but you find something solid that you can build your life on. We're going to continue talking about exactly that kind of thing a solid truth, a solid gospel that you can build your life on as we turn to the end of Romans chapter 8. Let me invite you to take a Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8 and we're going to read and then talk about verses 31 to 39. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? these eight or nine verses from Romans chapter eight as one of the most beautiful and exalted passages in the entire Bible. And there's good reason for that. I mean, it just soars from the moment Paul launches into it with that question what shall we say to these things to the end of it when he says nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He just is exalting in phrase after phrase in the security we enjoy as believers in Jesus and the love that God has for us as his adopted children. It's the crowning moment here at the end of Romans 8 of what he's been driving at now for, for three or even four chapters, which is that if our faith is in Christ Jesus, then we can have a rock-solid confidence that God will, in fact, save us. That's what he wants you to take away from everything that he talks about. From Romans chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through Romans chapter 8, he wants you to have birthed in your soul a rock-solid confidence that if your faith is in Jesus, you will be saved, he doesn't want that faith to be blown about by every wind of doctrine or every question of controversy. He doesn't want it to be knocked over by the hardships of the world or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or any of it. He doesn't want it to be knocked over by your own conscience. He wants your faith solid. And so for these nine verses here at the very end, he drives that home. Here's the main idea. I think of Romans eight thirty-one through 39. If you are trusting in Jesus for salvation, If you're trusting in Jesus for salvation, then God loves you and is for you. And nothing in the universe will ever change that. If you're trusting in Jesus for salvation, then God loves you and is for you. And nothing in the entire universe will ever change that. The text breaks down, I think, pretty easily into two paragraphs. First, you've got kind of a courtroom drama that unfolds in verses 31 to 34. And then in 35 to 39, there's a change from legal language to kind of the beating heart that lies behind it all, God's unbreakable love for us. So those are the two points of the sermon too. Because of Jesus, number one, God is forever on your side. That's the legal argument that Paul makes in verses 31 to 34. Because of Jesus, God is forever on your side. And then... In the second part of the text, from verses 35 to 39, number two, because of Jesus, nothing will ever separate you from his love. So because of Jesus, God is forever on your side. And then number two, because of Jesus, nothing will ever separate you from his love. And I pray that as we study this text this afternoon, you'll go away more confident and more assured than you've ever been. That your confidence in Jesus, your faith, your trust, your reliance on Jesus is well-placed. And that you'll see just how solid and deep and eternally rooted your salvation really is. It's not based in your own wavering will or your own questionable decision from moment to moment to moment. It's rooted in the eternal love of God. And that ought to give you great confidence. So point number one, if you're trusting in Jesus alone, then God is forever on your side. He's forever on your side. The passage opens with this question in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? What do we say? Given everything that's been said, what do we say to these things? Now, obviously what's going on with that question is that Paul is intending to sort of wrap up what he's been saying so far. And in fact, at the end of Romans 8, you have the end of the first major section of the book of Romans. It really divides down neatly and cleanly into three big sections. There's, there's the section that runs from Romans chapter 1 all the way through 8, where Paul is laying out the, the, the gospel in all of its glory and majesty. Then in nine through eleven, he turns to another question that that Mark will break out open or break open for us in the uh, the second afternoon session. And then from twelve to sixteen, he kind of moves into some more uh, applicational questions based on what he said so far. But here at the end of chapter eight, he's he's wrapping up everything that he's been saying so far. He's bringing this majestic exposition of the gospel to a close in these verses. Now, people have given different guesses as to what these things are. What shall we say to? to these things, what, what, is he, what is he talking about there? What's he referring to? And people have said, well, he's, he's talking about chapter eight, everything that he said in chapter eight. Other people have said, well, he's talking about the, the whole first eight chapters of the entire book. Some people say it's, it's just the last few verses. But as I look at it and as, as I read it, I think the best answer is probably some is that Paul is summing up the huge argument he's been making mostly since the beginning of chapter five. So for four chapters now, chapter five all the way through eight, the, the question has been, okay, you're saying, Paul, that, that God saves sinners solely on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. God's favor cannot be earned. The rewards of, of heaven and eternity cannot be won by us. We've already messed it up and there's no way we can fix that. There's no way we can live up to God's standard. And you're saying, Paul, in and, and all of these, this exposition of the gospel, that the way someone is saved is not through earning it, but by trusting in the one who has earned it, Jesus, by being united to him through faith. And so the question since the beginning of chapter five has been, is that true? I mean, I mean really, can we really have any confidence that God will save people just through faith in Jesus? And Paul's answer through all of these chapters is is, is yes, yes. And when you boil it all down, his answer really comes in that second sentence in our passage there in verse 31. And it's just a white, hot star of concision and truth where Paul just brings it all down. And he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? So in other words, let me, let me ask the question again. What shall we say to all these things? Can we really say that salvation is to be found in, in Jesus? And can we have confidence that that's not going to be overturned or, or trumped by something else? Can we really have any confidence in that? And Paul says, yes. What we shall say to these things is that if God is for us, who can be against us? Now on one level, you know, you, you read a sentence like that. If God is for us, who can be against us? And you think, well, of course, of course that's true, right? I mean, if, if God is for you, then, then who's going to sort of take it on themselves to, to set themselves against you, right? I mean, it's like the, the ultimate schoolyard bully thing, right? If the God of the universe is behind you and says, I'm going to fight for you, I mean, what bully is going to come up and pick a fight with you if God is there to punch him in the teeth, right? It's just, it's just obvious, you don't mess with the god of the universe and even if somebody does set themselves against you well, you know what does it matter i mean god has got your back and everything's going to be fine so it's so it's obvious in a way what paul is saying there if if god's for you he's the biggest kid on the block and nobody's going to mess with you but i think it's more than that too it's it's not just a logical truism that paul is saying there and if you know the argument of romans from from chapter five, really, all the way through chapter eight, then you you know that Paul is packing more into that phrase, if God is for us, than just the, the fact that he's big and he's powerful. If you know the argument of Romans five through eight, you start to feel the way to that little phrase, if God is for us. Because all the way back in chapter five, Paul had begun this whole section where he's been, he's been opening up the glories of salvation and what Jesus has earned for us from five, six, seven, and eight. He opened the whole thing up in chapter five by saying, therefore, if we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you might even read that as, therefore, if we have been justified by faith, God is for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he means. For God to be for you is means for God not to be against you. In your sin, God is against you. In Christ, God is for you. And that's what Paul means. That's the, that's the atomic meaning that's packed into that phrase. If God is for us, he means we are now at peace with God. And then the whole of chapters five, six, seven, and eight have just been ripping off one reason after another for why we can be confident that our faith in Jesus gives us peace in God, peace with God. That is why we can be confident that our faith in Jesus causes God to be for us rather than against us. Now I want you to understand that. so let's just think back over it. I mean, you, you will have picked up uh, some of this argument from, from Mark's sermon in, in uh, Romans chapter seven. You have picked up some of it from the other sermons that we've, that we've preached over the last few hours. But I want us to kind of sweep back over chapters five through eight so that you, you understand the weight that Paul is packing into the phrase, if God is for us. Think back over it. You might, you might flip back to Romans chapter five and just let your eye roll over the text as I talk through it a little bit at a very high level and just remind yourself a bit of the kinds of things Paul talks about. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says that it makes perfect sense actually that God should save us all through the work of one man, Jesus. If ever there was a question in the Jewish mind or in your mind, I mean, really, Paul? I mean, What you're saying is that, is that we're not saved by each of us doing our own individual things in order to earn God's favor. What you're saying is that one man obeys God in our place and that on the basis of that one man's obedience, God justifies the many. Really, Paul, is that, is that, does that really make sense? And Paul says, of course it does. Of course it makes sense. That's the way God has always worked. After all, it was another one man, Adam, Plunge the world into sin. And so it makes perfect sense that God should save also through the work of one man. So he says, there's no need to worry that God doesn't actually allow one person like Jesus to stand in the place of others like this. He's always done that from, from Adam to the kings of Israel and now to the king of Israel, Jesus. That's the way God works, he says. So you can have confidence in that and not doubt that God really does work like that. In chapter 6, He moves on and says that we as Christians, as believers in Jesus, are really, truly, vitally united to Christ, like a branch is united to a tree. That's where Paul learned that language about being united with Christ. He learned it from Jesus, that the branches are united to the vine and the sap of the vine then flows through and gives life to the branches. He says you're really, truly, vitally united to Christ so that that when Jesus died on the cross, As one who is united to him, you also died with him. And therefore the penalty of sin is exhausted and fully paid. And then he he goes on and says, not only that, not only as one united to Christ like a branch to a vine, not only did you die when he died, but also because you're united to him like that, when he was raised to newness of life, you too were raised to newness of life. The resurrection power that coursed through his body and brought life to his dead body, now, because you're united to him, courses through you as well. Like, like the sap from a, from a trunk goes into the branches of the tree and gives them life. That's what's happened to you also. He was raised and therefore you are raised. It's a newness of life. And therefore, he says, set free from slavery to sin. So you might serve your new king as those resurrected from the dead. And so Paul wants you to understand in Romans chapter 6, Because of that, our salvation as Christians will fail only if our union with Jesus Christ can somehow be broken. Our salvation will fail, he says, only if we could somehow be stripped away from Jesus and re-enslaved to sin. And Jesus says with fire in his eyes, that will never happen. Of all those whom the Father has given me, I will lose none of them. He said, I will raise them up at the last day and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In chapter 7, he turns to show how the law's claim on us as Christians is broken. And he makes this highly technical legal case where he says, look, there's, there's only one way. There's, there, there's only two ways, really, that one can be sort of set free from the law. Two ways that you can be set free from the claims of the law and the condemnation of the law. One of those ways to be set free from the law is just to accomplish it, right? To do everything that it demanded so that the law looks at you and says, yep, you fulfilled everything that I wanted so I've got no claim on you now. That's one way to be set free from the law. He says at the beginning of chapter seven, the other way that you can be set free from the law is to die. Well, as he goes on and unfolds the argument, he says, look, Jesus did both of those things. He accomplished it and he died. And so because we're united to him, we therefore are looked upon by God as those who have accomplished it and also died. So not only does the law have no claim on us because we died with Jesus, according to Romans 6, but also now the law looks on us as those united to the one who perfectly fulfilled the law and it actually hands down the verdict on, our, on, on, on us, you are righteous because it sees Jesus's life and righteousness imputed to us so he says in chapter seven our salvation will fail only if the law can ever again look at us and pronounce us to be guilty and that's something that will happen only if we can be snatched out of Jesus's hand which again he said will never happen in chapter eight you've got this fireworks display of reasons for why your salvation in Christ is eternally unchangeable and irrevocable. He says, you live in a whole new realm now. So you no longer live in the realm of sin and death and condemnation, but you live, Paul says in eight, in the realm of the spirit and life and justification. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is already at work in you, he says. Not only that, He says as he goes on through Romans 8, but because you are united to Christ, you have been adopted into God's family. You're you're not just a servant in God's household any longer, but you are a son or a daughter. And therefore, just as Jesus is an heir of all the blessings of eternity, because you are united to him and the blessings of eternity flow down on his head like oil, it also covers you and you become an heir to all the blessings of eternity. Not because of anything you've done, but entirely because of what Jesus has done for you. And to top it all off, he says, all of this has not been an accident. All of this has not been just due to the fact that you made a good decision at some point in your life. All of it has been God's unstoppable purpose for you since before the foundation of the world so that above all, God might bring glory to his son, Jesus, that he might be the firstborn of all creation. So Paul wants you to understand your salvation will fail Only when God decides to sever you from Jesus. Only when God decides to revoke his adoption of you. Only when God decides to cast you back under the power of sin and death. And only, God forbid, when God decides that Jesus really isn't worth glorifying after all. And that will never, ever happen. You see the point? Paul wants you to understand in Romans chapter five through chapter eight, that when God gave life to your soul and faith was born in your heart, you were irreversibly united to the one who is the object and center and pinnacle of all God's passion and love, Jesus Christ. And therefore now, to the degree that God is for Jesus, because you are united to Jesus, God is also for you. Do you hear that? To the degree now that God is for his son, Jesus, he is also for you. And if God is for you, in the same way he is for his only begotten beloved son, then who in all the universe can be against you? And if they are, does it even matter? And verse 32, presses the point a little bit further. If, if God is so determined to save us that he would put Jesus on the cross, if he's so determined to save us that he would put Jesus on the cross, then there's nothing in the world, Paul says, that he'll ever hold back from us. He's not just talking about eternal things either. He's, talking, he's also talking about the power and grace that are necessary for you to stand firm and to persevere in this Christian life. You See what he's saying? I mean, what he's saying is that, that if God gave his only begotten son to death then what that means is that all the resources of heaven up to and including the death of the son of God, all the power and omnipotence of God are dedicated to finishing his purpose in you. To the point that when your soul is born again and you cry out in faith to Jesus, the Holy Spirit himself, the the third person of the Trinity roars out of heaven to take residence in your heart, to defend you and help you and bring you safely home. There's even more that Paul goes on and talks about. This this whole thing, this whole argument comes to a head in verses 33 and 34. You've got this this courtroom scene that Paul sets up in these couple of verses. And it's, it's a picture really of the final judgment. Paul's been talking in these legal terms throughout the entire book because the reality is that one day we all will stand before the judge. In all of our rebellion, in all of our sin, we will stand before the judge and his eyes that are too pure to look down to look upon evil will look down on us and a verdict will be handed down from the throne of God on our life And like we said last night the great need of all humanity the great need of every individual person is for that verdict that's handed down from the throne to be a verdict of righteous rather than unrighteous justified rather than condemned and Paul's point for this whole book is that that verdict will never come to you because you earned it in any way whatsoever. You're not going to put enough green ink on the record of your life to, to cover up the red ink. You're not going to do enough good things that, that you can impress God into saying, well, you know what, that's, a, that's an impressive thing that you did there. So, so I'm going to give you eternal life just as a kind of consolation prize. There's nothing in your coat pocket that you're gonna be able to you know, pull out and show God and say, but look at this, God. Look, look what I've got here in my coat pocket. Look, look at that. When I was a kid in my church, they used to give away Sunday school attendance pins. If you made it a year, you got your pin and then you could hang little things on it. There were people in my church that had, had little, every five years or whatever, you'd get another little thing to hang down if you had perfect attendance. I had pe- there were people in my church that had the pin and the little things hanging down all the way to their heels, But not one of those people is going to be able to say, but look, God, look at my pin of Sunday school attendance. And expect him to say, well done. You've earned eternal life. And some of us, some of us just inexplicably think that that's the case. We string together a few days of quiet times or, you know, we handle a particularly difficult situation with our our kids without yelling with them and in fact, by shepherding the child's heart. And we think that God is looking down at us from heaven, just giving us a slow clap from the throne, you know? But <laughs> well, Paul says that's, that, that's not it. That's not it. He says, he says the, the point of the whole book has been you're never going to earn eternal life. You're never going to earn a verdict of righteousness. By doing this or by refraining from doing that or by doing that better than that person or slightly less than that person, you're never going to earn it. There's only one person who's ever earned it and that's Jesus. And the only way you're gonna get the blessings and the reward of it is by being united through faith to him. But here in verses 33 and 34, he says that once that verdict of righteous is given to you, Once God looks down from the throne at at you and once Jesus steps up to defend you and says, Father, I know that this person is guilty. I know that they are. I understand that as well as anybody. They're guilty, but but Lord, let let the court remember that I've already died for those sins and my record of perfect righteousness is to to stand in the place of, of theirs. And once the father says, yes, son, they're one of yours and the verdict comes down, this person is justified. Paul says that verdict is utterly unchangeable. In these two verses, they're 33 and 34, they're really asking the same question, right? I mean, who will bring any charge and who is to condemn? Those are, those are the same things. Who will bring any charge? Who is to condemn? It's the, it's the same question. And the answer to both of those questions is nobody. Nobody's gonna condemn God's elect. Nobody's gonna be able to condemn those for whom Christ died. Nobody can condemn Jesus's people. Nobody's gonna bring any charge that's gonna stick, but Why not? Why can nobody bring a charge? And the answer, the answer is everything we've been talking about all, all weekend long. But, but Paul here gives four answers really in rapid fire succession. Why can nobody bring a charge against God's elect? Why will his verdict never be overturned? First answer comes in the question itself really, I think, in verse 33. No one will be able to condemn God's people precisely because they are God's elect. No one can condemn God's people, those whom he has justified, precisely because those people are the elect. It goes back to what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. In eternity past, God forloved us, and because he forloved us, he determined that we ought to be called to life, declared righteous, conformed gloriously to the image of his son, Jesus. And, and Paul's point is that God's not gonna be surprised at any point in our life to find out that we're sinners. It's not as if something happens in our lives and and God goes, oh, made a mistake on that one. (laughs) I mean, there's certain theologies running around the you know, quote-unquote evangelical world that would say that there are certain things that you do in your life, certain sins that you commit that God actually is surprised about that sort of knock him back on the throne. But the Bible says that's not true. That's not true. God knew everything about you all the way back in eternity past. And if you were a Christian, he made you one of his elect in spite of all that. So nothing in your life, nothing that happens is gonna gonna surprise him. He's not gonna be surprised to find out that you're a sinner. There's no way that God's eternal purpose for us is gonna be overturned by a charge of sin. You know what the word Satan means in the Bible? It means the accuser. It's one who accuses God's people of sin. That's his role. You see it all, all, all throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. This is what he does. He accuses God's people Before God. But friends there's nothing. That Satan can bring against you as an accusation. That's going to surprise God. In Revelation chapter 10. He even says that if he tries to do that. God will simply throw him out of court. Because in in the wake of Jesus's life and death and resurrection in your place. It's actually unjust. For Satan to accuse you. And demand your condemnation. The sin's already been paid for. The penalty has already been exhausted. And so God simply throws him out of court. No one will be able to condemn us precisely because we're the elect. That's what, God's, that's what Paul says here. Second, second reason that he gives here is that no one will be able to condemn God's people because it is God who justifies No one will be able to condemn us as God's people precisely because it is God who justifies. In other words, when God hands down a verdict of you are righteous, there is no other higher court in the universe that can overturn that. There's no lawyer that can say, Well, I'm going to appeal to a higher court than the court of God. And so, what God has spoken will stand. His verdict of righteous, his verdict of justified, wraps around your life like a fortress of diamond and it will never be overturned. God has spoken, and therefore, no one will condemn us. Third, Paul says, Nobody's going to condemn us because it's Christ who died. No one's gonna be able to condemn us or bring a charge against us as God's people, as Jesus' people, because it is precisely Jesus Christ who has died. The son of God gave his life to kill our sin, to exhaust its curse, to plunge it into a shoreless sea so that it might be sunk and forgotten forever. And if that's true, who's gonna go down into the depths of that ocean and drag it back up and convince God, the great judge, to take another look at it? Nobody. fourth he says it's not just that Christ has died but that he now lives and sits at the right hand of God to intercede for us that word there intercede doesn't just mean pray it's not it's not just saying simply that Jesus prays for you though we we use that word as evangelicals to mean we say we intercede for someone means we pray for them and it's true but here intercede is another legal word it means that Jesus advocates or argues for us. And Paul's point is that if Jesus is your advocate, if Jesus is your lawyer, then nothing Satan can say as the prosecuting attorney is ever gonna overturn God's verdict of righteous over you. I mean, you can imagine the scene. You're, you stand before the throne of God and Satan, Satan stands up and says, Lord, I have evidence against this person and the law demands death. He did this, she did that. There's this and that and this. And you remember that time that this happened. And the universe holds its breath because it, it recognizes that Satan's right. It's all, it's all there. But then Jesus stands up and says, yes, Lord, it's, it's all true. I mean, you know Jesus, when he advocates for you, is not going to stand up before the, the throne of God and and sort of apologize for you. He's not not gonna say, oh God, but it wasn't that big a deal and there were mitigating circumstances and this changed things and that changed. That's not the way Jesus advocates for you. He's not gonna try to make a case that you're innocent of all these sins that are laid out. He's gonna stand before the throne of God and say, yes, Father, all of that is true. The prosecuting attorney has it exactly right, but I want the court to remember that I've already died for all of that. That's what it means when Paul says he intercedes for us. He advocates for us and argues for us. And so Satan's charges will not stand. Look, here's the point the whole of Romans chapter 5 through 8 has as its burning goal to create in your heart a deep, deep confidence in Jesus, a deep confidence in faith, a deep assurance that God will, in fact, finish in you what he started. And the question is, all right, where's that confidence rooted? And the answer over and over again is that Paul pushes you for assurance of salvation to Jesus, not to yourself. The irony, I think, for many of us as Christians is that we try to create assurance of our salvation by looking to ourselves. And you know, what we think is that what we need to do is, is get rid of this sin, get this virtue to grow in my life. And, and then if I, can, if I can get rid of that sin or see that virtue grow in my life, well, then I'll feel confident in, in my salvation. Then I'll feel sort of clean enough to go to Jesus and present myself to him for, for service. But friends, according to the Bible, that is exactly wrong. It's exactly wrong. Look, look what is it ultimately that always undermines our assurance of salvation. What is it ultimately that always undermines our assurance of salvation? It's when charges are brought against us and we start to be afraid that those charges are gonna wind up leading to our condemnation. That's what causes us to, to doubt salvation. That's what causes assurance to be undermined in our lives. Now, those charges can come from different places, right? And sometimes the charges that are brought against us come from Satan, the accuser. Sometimes those charges that we get so afraid of come from the world. Sometimes they they come from the law, as we read it in the Bible. Sometimes those charges come from our own conscience. But friend, when those charges come, the answer is not to say, okay, 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 okay. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna work harder and try to earn God's salvation. I'm gonna work harder and try to try to overcome these charges with, with a lot more good and a lot less bad. And the answer when charges come against you, whether it's from Satan or from the law or from your own conscience is to say with Paul right here in Romans chapter eight, yes, 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 it's all true, but it is Christ who died. Friends, you should let that become a, 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 a prayer in your life that just, Flows through you like water. When Satan tells us that you, that when Satan tells you that you don't deserve salvation, you say, "I know." But it is Christ who died. When the world laughs and says, "You, I know you. You're not a Christian. I knew you back in the day." When you see old friends that you that you run into and you want to tell them about your life has changed, but you, there's this fear that you're gonna that you're gonna embarrass God because they knew your your prior life. When those charges come from old friends or from the world, you say, yes, I know, but it is Christ who died. When your conscience tells you that your passion for God is not hot enough, you say, yes, I know, but it's Christ who died. When God's law points out even long patterns of sin in your life, the answer is, yes, I know, but it is Christ who died. Brothers and sisters, you don't need any other weapon. You don't need to prove that you're worthy of having faith in Jesus. You don't need to prove that God was was right, that He made a good decision in making you one of the elect. The whole point of faith is that you recognize way down deep in your heart that you're not worthy to be saved. So let it be your plea. The same thing that Paul says here Yes, I know, but it is Christ Christ who died. It's Christ who died. It's Christ who died. God is for you because of Jesus and he will forever be. No charge leveled against you, whether by Satan or the world or your own conscience is ever going to stand against you because it is Christ who died. Here's the second thing. Because of that, if your faith is in Jesus, then nothing will ever separate you from his love. Because Jesus died, if your faith is in him, then nothing will ever separate you from his love. So, so what, what stands behind all this? I and mean, the fact that, that Jesus did in fact die, the fact that you, you if you are a Christian or among God's elect from, from eternity past, the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in you and all the blessings of eternity are yours because of what Jesus did for you, what, what stands behind it all? Like, wh- where does it all come from? What? What grounds it and establishes it all? What's the root that it all grows from? Well, Paul says here in verses 35 through 39 that what stands behind it all is the fact that God loved us. That's what stands behind it all. And what stands behind that? What stands behind the the fact that God loved you? Who knows? (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's in the depths of God's eternal heart of love. You remember that amazing passage in Deuteronomy chapter 7 where, where God is sort of explaining to the people of Israel why he loves them. You ever, you ever read this thing? He says, and he gives them, he gives them a couple of reasons why, you know, for why it, it, it's not, right? This is not why I loved you. And he says, he says look, I, I didn't love you. I didn't set my affection on you because you were the greatest of all peoples. That, that certainly wasn't it. If that was it, I'd have picked the Egyptians, right? Or the Assyrians. It wasn't because you were so great, that, that wasn't it. I, I didn't set my affection on you. I didn't, I didn't set my love on you because, because you were so powerful either. I mean, you've basically gotten conquered by everybody in the world so far. It's not that you're so powerful. That's not why I set my love on you. And then, and then there in Deuteronomy 7, he, he gives them the reason. <laughs> why he loved them, and they, they, they must have been listening, like, what was it, what was it, what was it? Because they think that what's coming is a reason why they're so awesome, right? And that's why God loved them. But he says, here's the reason that I loved you. I loved you because I loved you. <laughs> and I loved you because I loved you, 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 all the way down into this eternal abyss of God's amazing Love. That's what we mean when we say that election. That's what we mean when we say that God's love is unconditional. There's no reason in the Bible that he gives. And if you you study your own heart, even as a Christian, you're not going to come up with any reason for why God looked at you and made you one of the elect. What you'll find instead are all kinds of reasons why he shouldn't have done that. And yet he did anyway. What stands behind the entire gospel, what stands behind everything is the fact that God loved us and he loved us because he loved us because he loved us because he loved us. He loved us. That's exactly what Paul talks about in, in Romans 35 to 39. If all, if, if all this is true, he says, if God has loved us and therefore all the blessings of eternity are ours because we're united to Christ, then, then who's gonna separate us, he asks, from the love of Christ? And the answer he gives to that question is nothing. Nothing. Nothing's ever gonna separate us from the love of Christ. Tribulation's not gonna do it. Distress is not gonna do it. Persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and even even the killing sword itself are not gonna separate us from the love of Christ. I think the interesting thing about all those things that he he lists there in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. I think the really interesting thing about that is that if you read 2 Corinthians and Acts what you realize all of a sudden is that Paul had experienced every single one of those things with the exception of the sword and that was coming soon enough. And so he had a lot of experience. He had a lot of knowledge born of experience that not a single one of those things was ever going to cut him off from Christ. He'd experienced tribulation and come out the other side of it still loved by Jesus. He'd experienced distress and come out the other side still loved by Jesus. Same thing with persecution and famine and nakedness and and danger. And he was quite confident that even when the sword went through him, he would come out the other side, still loved by Jesus. Verse 36 is a quotation from Psalm 44. Its point is to remind us, as Paul often does, that all these things he's talked about in verse 35 are to be expected in the Christian life. This is our lot. If, If you're a Christian, then your lot is to face things like tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. It is your lot that for Christ's sake we are being killed all the day long and that we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Why is that your lot? And why does the Bible hold out those kinds of things as just to be expected in the Christian life? Well, it's because Jesus, your king, suffered. And you are united to him. And therefore you, will suffer. I think a lot of the anxiety and just, just trouble that Christians deal with in, in life when it comes to hardship and difficulty is because we don't take it to heart that such hardship and difficulty is really to be expected in the Christian life. And we, basically have a, we basically have a thought that what we should expect is, you know, as the old song said, a, a rosy bed that we get to lie on all the way to heaven as it sails into the eternal sun, Sunset. And so when something goes wrong and our rosy bed is overturned into the cold ocean, we get mad about it. And we cry out to God, Lord, why are you letting this happen? I didn't know that this was part of the contract. I don't, I don't like this. I don't want it. But over and over again, of course, the Bible says you should expect it. You should bear up under it like a, like a weightlifter setting his, setting his legs underneath weight. Your, your, your job is to bear up and push up under the hardship of this life. That's what we do as Christians. But look at verse 37, even though these things will come, Paul says, even though they are to be expected in the Christian life, we are, he says, more than conquerors in them. Now, what does he mean by that? I mean, you can read it. And I think most of the time we just sort of let, let our minds wash over phrases like that, that don't make immediate sense. And we just sort of let them go, right? And we think, okay, well, that's just, that's just rhetorical. What Paul means, actually, is that we are conquerors of these things. We're not, just, we're not just defeated by them, but we're conquerors of them. And so he's just using that phrase, more than conquerors, as a kind of rhetorical flourish. But I don't, I don't think it's just rhetorical. To be a conqueror over these things would mean, I think, simply that we would endure them, right? We, we beat them back. They don't defeat us. And at the end of it all, when persecution and distress and nakedness and the sword have had their way, we are, we're still standing in heaven before the throne of God. They don't, they don't beat us. That would be what it means to conquer them. What does it mean, though, to do more than that? Well, I think probably, Paul is thinking back to Romans 8, verse 28, that not only do these things not beat us, but that God is actually working all these things for our good. It's not that that we're so awesome in overcoming these things. We are more than conquerors. These things are being worked together for our good through him who loved us. Verses 38 and 39 bring it all, I think, to a conclusion. Look what he says there. He says, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our our Lord. He sets up a, a series of pairs there, right? Death, life, angels, demons, pairs that he's got. And I think his aim in those pairs is really to encompass the entire universe, I think what he's getting down to is, is there's, there's nothing, nothing in all the universe that can separate us. Not, not death, not life, not angels, not rulers, not powers, not present, not the future, not height, not depth. And just in case you've missed the point of what he's doing in those pairs, he, he tags the whole thing with the phrase, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God. Now, now some people look at that and they think that what Paul is saying there in a sly way is that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, but we can separate ourselves from Christ. But it can't be saying that. That just cannot be Paul's point. I mean, for one thing, it doesn't make sense. It would just make hash of the whole argument that he's been making since the beginning of chapter five, right? I mean, can you imagine what, I mean, what does it mean if Paul has been driving at this point? Nothing will separate you, nothing will separate you, nothing will separate you, ah, but you can mess up so bad you'll fall away it just destroys the argument. I mean, I mean, second, it would just ignore Romans eight twenty-eight to 30. And if you look at that golden chain of salvation that Paul lays out in Romans 29 through, through 30, those whom he foreloved, he also predestined. Those he, fore, he, he predestined, he also uh, called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's an unbreakable process, right? It's not that some fall out along the way. It's 100% make it on every step of that journey. If you're justified, you're going to be glorified. You're not going to separate yourself from Christ. I mean, besides that, think about that list of things in verse 35 that Paul said are not going to separate us from Christ. I mean, it said, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, no. Distress, no. Persecution, no. Famine, no. Nakedness, no. Danger, no. Sword, no. I mean, think about what he means by saying all those things he doesn't actually mean that the sword might literally cut us off from Christ. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean that persecution might literally tear us away from Jesus. That's not what he's worried about. He doesn't mean that somebody might persecute you and actually cause you to be torn away from Christ. What he's worried about is that all of those things Distress, tribulation, nakedness, persecution, sword. He's worried that some of those things might cause our faith in Jesus to falter, that they might cause us to, to shrink back and turn away. And his point is that if your trust is in Jesus, then even those things won't be powerful enough to make you forsake Christ. I hope you can see the point in all this and revel in it. If your faith is in Jesus, then you are deeply and dearly loved and nothing is ever gonna separate you from his love. Not the world, not the flesh, not the devil. All of those are gonna roar in a thousand different ways, but not a single one of them should cause you to fear. You are secure in Christ's love. The world's gonna persecute you. More so now in the United States of America than at any time in the last 300 years, the world is gonna persecute you for being a Christian. But none of that will tear you away from Christ. You're gonna face distress in this world You're gonna face disease, you're gonna face unbelieving children, you're gonna face cancer and sickness. You're gonna face poverty, you're gonna face foreclosure, you're gonna face the firing from your job or being laid off. You're gonna face all of that in this life but not a single piece of it will ever pull you away from Christ. You're gonna face death. The woman whose son is a member of my church Faced that moment I found out just just a little bit ago last night at about 6.30. I hadn't hadn't known that until just a little bit ago. She faced death. But you know the thing about, about death? It's such a fearsome enemy to us. But it's an enemy that is firmly under the foot of him who conquered death. There was a time not too long ago when one of my sons was... Was sort of saddled with a, a terrible fear of death. It was, it was his own own death that he was scared of, and it was also the death of, of me and Mariah. He was just very scared back in about the third grade that we would both be killed in a car accident and what would happen to him. He was just he was just scared to death, about death. And I remember one conversation with him, where where I, I was trying to explain to to this little boy how much death was a defeated enemy. And and I I, I said to him, because this is the kind of language that little boys get, I said, look, Jesus defeated death. And and when I say that he defeated it, I don't just mean that he defeated it like in a card game. I mean he kicked it in the teeth. And I mean that, that when death comes for you, it's not a fearsome enemy anymore. It's on a leash. It's completely under the crown and authority of King Jesus. And all the king has given death authority to do with his people is deliver them safely into his arms. Because death is going to come for you. Death's going to come for you. But, but when it comes, I hope, you can say, I hope you can say to it, death, apparently the moment's come. My life is over, but when my trust is in Jesus, God has given his verdict over my life and I know and you know as well as I do that all you have authority to do is carry me up to Jesus and lay me at his feet. Oh, and one more thing, death. Before we get going on this last journey together, one more thing. You know as well as I do that your day is coming soon when the king destroys you once and for all. Mark ended his last sermon with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I guess this is just what we preachers do, especially Baptist ones, but... It's a beautiful quote from Spurgeon. I'm not going to take a vote because I assume that the answer will be the same as for Mark. We're just going to go with that. (laughs) He's meditating on, on death and what it'll be like for a Christian, and he writes this. He says, I do not think that there will be any jerk on the metals when we arrive at the heavenly terminus. No, we'll just run straight on into the shed where the engine will stop. Nay, we'll run straight on into the glory where we shall rest forever and ever. I think I've heard of a captain who was so skilled that when he had arranged all the steering gear, he had not to alter a point for thousands of miles. And when he came to the harbor, he had so guided the vessel that he just sailed straight in. A friend, if you get the Lord Jesus Christ on board the vessel of your life, you will find that he is such a, still, a skillful steersman that you will never have to alter your course. He will so set your ship's head that between here and heaven, there will be nothing to do but to go right on. And then all of a sudden, you'll hear a voice saying, furl the sail and let go the anchor. You'll hear a little rattle of the chain and the vessel will be still forever. Forever. In that port which is truly called the fair havens. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you that nothing in all creation, not angels nor demons, not the present nor the past, not height nor depth, nor anything else in all the universe will ever be able to separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that the day is coming when we'll stand in your presence forever. And sing your praises with all creation. We look forward to that day. And we pray, Lord, that in the meantime, you would help us to be faithful and firm in our faith in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.